And I believe that I have spent the last uh, few minutes talking without uh, unmuting myself. Um, so it was a great conversation that I just had with myself. I uh, fascinated myself and made some incredibly persuasive points that changed my views on many things. And now that I just realized my embarrassing error, I'm about to share with you the things that I was just uh, sharing with myself <laughs> inadvertently. Um, sometimes it's good to, to work things out, even if that's not your plan. I'll try and uh, reduce my embarrassment by pointing to some possible virtue in, in what I just did. So um, let me just gather my thing, go back to the beginning and say, welcome to the Glenn Greenwald podcast. Um, every time I do another show, I become more comfortable with the technology. I get more and more excited about what this platform enables. I am particularly enthused about the interactivity that it permits and the ease with which a journalist or a commentator or an analyst can engage in what I think is a crucial form of accountability, which is hearing from people who have comments or questions or criticisms of the things that you're saying, writing and doing. I think journalists are way too insulated from their critics, and this is a crucial venue to enable that. So as most of you probably know, if you have a question, you just indicate that you have a question or want to speak. It'll automatically put you into the queue. I will then take in order, in sequence, the people who are in the queue, and we can have conversations about whatever is on your mind. So as the title of the room indicates, I want to talk about the House acquittal. Engage in a very in-depth analysis of the case from a judicial or legal perspective. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the involved. If you have questions about that, I'm happy to. Right when the verdict was issued, almost immediately after, I went live on a Rumble video, which you can go and watch. And I spent 45 minutes talking about the view of the case. When the verdict was announced when it was about when the jury was coming back. I was actually live on the air on Megyn Kelly's show, and we had just spent about 30 to 45 minutes dissecting the case there as well before we knew there was about to be a verdict. Megan, of course, is I'm sure you know, herself used to be a lawyer, and so we talked a lot about the, legal, the legalities of, of the case, and you can find that show on YouTube of uh, my discussion with Megan and my own symbol. So I instead want to talk about a couple of discrete points that are more about the reaction to the verdict that I think have received insufficient attention. And then we can have a conversation about not just those, but whatever might be on your mind about the case and the verdict itself. So let me begin with this observation, which I find extraordinary and revealing and disturbing. Some of you might have seen that I have pointed out media and last night on Wilson's program. The fact that here in Brazil, where I live, three of the leading news outlets in Brazil, three mainstream, large, responsible news outlets, including the largest newspaper in Brazil, Folha of São Paulo, which is essentially the New York Times of Brazil, although responsible and competent, as well as 
the flagship newspaper for the Globo Empire, the Globo Media Empire called O Globo, which is the newspaper based in Rio de Janeiro, as well as this sprawling online news network called WAL, U-O-L, all to report on the Rittenhouse case this week, not a year and a half ago, right after it happened, but this week, they all published stories purporting to tell the readers about what this case was and why it was important. And all three of these gigantic mainstream news outlets made the same fundamental factual mistake. Not in the 10th or 15th paragraph of the articles, but in the headlines on social media promoting the articles and in the text and body of the article itself. All three of these leading Brazilian media outlets, for whatever reasons, believed and therefore said that a white youth on trial for shooting black men and killing two of them. They all made that same mistake. They all shot were black and said that, even though none of them was black. They were all white. And like in the United States, you have different levels of ethics. So Folia had the integrity to acknowledge their, gro- their, their gross error and apologize and note it on Twitter. Sheepishly self-edited the article and pretended it never happened and deleted the tweets. But all three of them made that same exact mistake that wasn't about an ancillary detail in the case, but was crucial and fundamental to the entire narrative that they were trying to convey to their readers, which was that these were racist shootings as evidenced by the fact that he was a white kid who had shot three black people. It wasn't just in Brazil. It was also in the United Kingdom. The Independent, which is one of the most mainstream centrist, let's papers, not again in the hours after the shooting last year, but yesterday when the verdict was delivered, said in the bullet points at the top of the article that Kyle Rittenhouse had just been acquitted on charges that he had shot three black men and killed two. There was a leading Dutch newspaper that in the morning also made exactly the same mistake. And I'm certain there are other media outlets around the world and other languages that also were under that similar false impression about a central fact in this case. I'm not talking about random Twitter trolls. I'm talking about the leading newspapers around the globe. And you can find a lot of people on Twitter as well, including people with big platforms and blue check marks, who to this very day keep saying that the people that Kyle Rittenhouse killed were black. I, how could that happen? How is made exactly the same mistake, the, exactly the same crucial mistake about a central fact in this case, namely the racial identity of the victims. It may be that it shouldn't have been a sentence, but they made it one by headlining it and creating this racist attack. Where did they get that idea from? This false idea, this obviously false belief that the people he shot were black. The answer is obvious, which is that in this climate where major corporations are struggling financially, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Very few 
large media outlets have foreign bureaus. Very few media outlets that report on what's happening in the United States actually have journalists who are at the trial or who pay close attention. Mostly what they do is they follow some New York Times and CNN journalist on Twitter or watch CNN clips or MSNBC clips that come across their Twitter feed from Media Matters or whomever. They're, they're completely reliant on the narrative that is fed to them about the United States by mainstream corporate outlets. That's where they got this from. And I don't mean by that that these major media outlets in the United States ever explicitly said that the people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed were black. What I do mean is that they deliberately created that false impression and did so in numerous ways, including by calling Kyle Rittenhouse repeatedly from the start a white supremacist terrorist, even though there was never any evidence that Kyle Rittenhouse subscribes to an ideology of white supremacy. They called him a white supremacist terrorist, which meant that not only was he a white supremacist, but that this is a terrorist act designed to advance the ideology of white supremacy, which naturally would lead people to believe, and obviously did lead many journalists around the world to believe, that and shot them. And that's why they put it in the headlines of their newspapers in a way that was incredibly embarrassing. But the other way that they did that, that they deliberately cultivated this false perception, was that they concealed on purpose the fact that the race of Kyle Rittenhouse's, the people Kyle Rittenhouse shot, was white. Now, if it were the case that media outlets in general don't talk about race and don't identify the race of people who are the shooters or who are shot, that would be normal. But of course, the opposite is true. These media outlets are obsessed, obsessed with telling you every single time that the police shoot somebody what the race of the person that they shot is if the person isn't white. Because that helps the narrative that they're trying to create, that this is a racist society foundationally embedded in white supremacy. That's the belief that they have. And so they write their journalistic copy not to convey facts that they want you to have, but to to manipulate you into seeing the world the way they want you to see the world. And I'm sure you can find examples where in passing in like the 10th paragraph or 14th paragraph, the New York Times, the Washington Post, probably every other outlet mentioned two months ago or whenever that the people Kyle Rittenhouse shot were white. I'm not saying it never was mentioned, but it was deliberately concealed. One of the articles that made the biggest impression on me was an article at The Intercept the news outlet I founded in 2013 and then left in 2020 that is completely fixated on race. Almost every article they publish, they insert a racial angle into the very beginning. Everything is about black and brown communities. This person's black, this person's brown. They're obsessed with race. They publish a 3,000 word or longer article about the Rittenhouse case and they use the word white 21 times. Each time to tell you that Kyle Rittenhouse is white and that his politics were the politics of white supremacy, but never once mentioning that the people that he shot was white. And obviously, I don't need to tell anyone, everyone, there's no one who would deny. Had Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed people, that would have not only been mentioned repeatedly, but would have been the primary fact that they trumpeted in the headline. That's how they manipulate the narrative. And then some of the most influential and prestigious and most 
uh, and media corporations around the world were deceived altogether into believing something about this case that was completely and totally false. Not about an ancillary fact, but about a central fact. Now, again, you can argue that it should have been an ancillary fact, what the race was of the people he shot, or that it shouldn't, but they made it central, insisting that this was a case involving primarily racism and a racial dynamic. And if you do that, then of course, whether the people who were shot were actually black or white becomes a central fact. How is it that all of these major media outlets got this crucial fact not in the hours after the shooting, but up until a year and a half later yesterday when the verdict was issued. It's obviously because they were misled, as millions of Americans were, about what happened by the American media. And I think I've said before that I had paid close attention to the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting since it happened, but I never once used my public platform to speak about it or opine on it in any way. Because as somebody who has been a lawyer, I know that many times, especially if a trial is about to happen, you don't really get the full picture of the truth until you have the benefit of seeing the evidence and testimony in their full context, subject to cross-examination, and all of the rules of evidence designed to ensure that evidence is being presented in the most reliable manner possible. The opposite of what happens if you're paying attention to something I've deliberately refrained not just from speaking out about the Rittenhouse case, but even forming an opinion until I could sit down and watch the full trial, which I did. And when I did, I was genuinely enraged and shocked and betrayed, notwithstanding what is obviously my extremely low opinion of the media, at the enormous gap that was there between the narrative that they created about these events and the reality of what actually took place and the proof of how it was is in the the world believe something that was completely false about what happened here that is extraordinary to see it's amazing to see now on this issue of the race of the people Kyle Rittenhouse shot. When you point out the fact that he shot three white people seems inconsistent with the claim that was circulated from the start that this was an act of white supremacist terrorism, people will point out, not unreasonably, that sometimes white supremacists do kill white people if they perceive that those white people are activists on behalf of a civil rights movement or anti-racist causes. And they'll point almost entirely exclusively to the notorious case in Mississippi in 1964 when three activists on behalf of the civil rights movement, one African-American, James Cheney, and two Jewish uh, anti-racist activists, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, had gone to Mississippi and disappeared. And it was determined that people associated with the KKK had murdered them. And people will say that's an instance where the KKK killed three people, two of whom were white. So sometimes white supremacists kill people who are devoted anti-racist activists. And yes, that's true. The fact that the people Kyle Rittenhouse shot were white does not prove 
that he is not a white that he is not a white supremacist. In general, if you want to make the accusation, grave accusation about someone that they're a white supremacist and we're driven by white supremacist terrorism, the burden is on you to present the evidence to demonstrate that that's true. And there is none. But the other aspect of it is that, yet again, this narrative bears no resemblance to the truth. So often, the protests that got called Black Lives Matter protests were driven overwhelmingly by white people who very often had no interest in anti-racist causes. You can go read from June and July and August of 2020, where many Black activists who have long been involved in the anti-racist cause were enraged by what they perceived as white interlopers from Antifa and other causes trying to smuggle in their own nihilism or their own insurrectionist anarchy into this movement and using it as a pretext to engage in violence because of their because of their own political cause total racism or just for their own personal enjoyment or satisfaction and if you look at the three people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot it is almost impossible to depict any of those three as devoted noble anti-racist activist who Kyle Rittenhouse would have shot because he was so offended by their anti-racism. The first person that he shot and killed, Joseph Rosenbaum, it's impossible for anyone to depict him that way, except for the most craven propagandist. He was somebody who was clearly struggling with mental health issues, was just released from a psychiatric hospital where he tried to kill himself, had a long history of serious crimes, was hurling the N-word and everyone he could find, there was nothing about him that suggested he was there for anything having to do with anti-racist activism. Which obviously isn't to say that he deserved to be killed. No one deserves to be killed. But the claim that Kyle Rittenhouse shot him because he was so offended by his anti-racist dedication, dedicated activism as opposed to the reality that Rosenbaum had said to Kyle Rittenhouse, I will kill you if I find you alone, and then chased him and tried to take his gun, is an utterly false narrative for anyone who watched the trial. And then the other two people that he shot, it may have been the case that they actually had good motives, that they perceived falsely that Kyle Rittenhouse was some kind of an active shooter, there to shoot people, and were trying to... I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying it's a possibility. We don't know what their motives were. But what we do know is that it's very difficult to say about either of them that they were anti-racist activists. One of the people who we shot, the one who survived, Gage Grosskreutz, he was there in support of the Black Lives Matter cause. He said he was just a medic who likes to go to protests, violently help people carrying a gun in a long criminal record. And that that was why he was there as a Black Lives Matter activist. And then the other person that Kyle Rittenhouse uh, shot and then killed, Anthony Huber, by all accounts was there because he was friends with Jacob Blake, who had been shot by the Kenosha police days earlier. And many media had to retract the claim that they shot him when he was unarmed because the reality was they had been called there 
by his ex-wife who claimed that he was guilty of domestic violence, which two of the three people Kyle Rittenhouse shot also were convicted of in the past, that they were trying, he was trying to kidnap children, his children, and that he had a knife in the car that they believed that he was going and lunging for when they shot him. So again, it doesn't mean that any of these people deserve to die. I don't think there's anything positive with this case. They said before, I've confessed before, maybe because of how I grew up or where, that in general, I, it makes me uncomfortable when I see ordinary citizens walking on the street with AR-15 strapped when they're going into highly inflammatory and protests where violence can easily erupt. It's possible people being armed can actually reduce the possibility of of violence. But personally, I'm uncomfortable seeing people with AR-15s. And I don't think it's a great thing to encourage 17-year-olds who haven't been trained to be police officers or security guards to walk around AR-15s. I wish that weren't the society we had where people felt the need to do that. But that doesn't matter at all how I feel when I see that. The reality is the law permits it. It's legal. There are people at those protests on both sides who are armed. And so a lot of this over Kyle Rittenhouse's acquittal seems to come from the belief that he shouldn't have been allowed to be there with an AR-15. But the fact is the law allowed that of any crimes because he didn't violate the law with regards to that gun that he had. That's just the nature of the society that we live in. So it, there's a lot of things you can debate about the Rittenhouse case, whether he should have gone, whether it was noble, whether it was reckless. But none of that matters to the only question that really should be on our minds, which is, did the state prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed the crimes of murder and attempted murder and should spend the next 40 or 50 years or the rest of his life in prison? And if you watch the trial, in my view, there's no way to conclude that there was any just verdict in this case other than an acquittal. So that leads me to my last point, which is, why is it that there are so many people refusing to applaud this acquittal who are on the liberal left side of the spectrum? And it's not just that they're unwilling to applaud the acquittal, way, way beyond that. They really do seem to regard this case as some sort of litmus test for whether you're a good person. They believe that the desire to see Kyle Rittenhouse convicted as a murderer and put in a cage for the next 50 years is a determinative metric of whether you are a white nationalist or a racist or a fascist or whether you're not. Why has this case taken on that level of importance to this faction of the ecosystem, especially given that for a long time, the liberal left has stood for criminal justice reform, the idea that we shouldn't be trying minors as adults. And Kyle Rittenhouse was a minor at the time of the crime, but was charged as an adult. It's generally been a political movement that said that we should increase the rights that defendants have, reduce the power that the prosecutors have. And yet here they are not just cheering for prosecutors, and demonizing a defendant, but saying that if you, if you believe in due process and watch the trial and think the evidence was insufficient, somehow that makes you a white nationalist and a racist and a fascist. Why is it taken on such importance to this movement? 
most of whom didn't even bother to watch the trial. That's extremely clear. I don't know if you saw, but yesterday, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, went onto Twitter to express his outrage and indignation that Kyle Rittenhouse had been acquitted. And his argument about why the acquittal was so unjust, plainly unjust, was that Kyle Rittenhouse had traveled across sacred state lines with an AR-15. Now, anyone who knows anything about this case, who has paid minimal attention to this case, let alone anyone who watched the trial, knows that that's an absolute lie. Kyle Rittenhouse did not travel across state lines with the gun. He went the day before to Wisconsin and his gun was there. So the fact that Bill de Blasio said that was proof that he was condemning a jury verdict in a trial that he knew nothing about. And that's true for so many people on the liberal left who are furious about this acquittal yet seem to know nothing about this case. And I can tell you that in all my years of journalism, as often as I have positioned myself against the orthodoxies of American liberalism or the left, I've never experienced animus this intense as I have this week over my view that acquittal was just. So why is this so important to them, even though they didn't bother to watch the trial? And this is, I think, a critical point about where we are in American politics, because it isn't just in the Rittenhouse case where the liberal left is on the side of prosecutors demanding harsh punishment, as harsh as can possibly be in the case of the January 6th defendants, where there used to be a foundational view in American liberalism that nonviolent protesters shouldn't be imprisoned at all, let alone imprisoned for a long time. Imprisoning nonviolent protesters is something that authoritarian countries by definition do. And yet we're watching not dozens, but hundreds of people who the state admits, the Justice Department admits, engaged in no who not sent to prison for years, years as felons, even though they didn't use violence. And we just had this case this week of Jacob Chesney, who became the symbol just because he was wearing an outlandish costume, not because he did anything violent at all. In fact, the state admits he used no violence. He was sentenced to four years in prison, slightly over three after having already served 10 months in pretrial detention. Just as they support the harsh prosecution of one six defendants, just like they have a bloodlust to see Kyle Rittenhouse in prison. Just like they spent four years hoping and praying and demanding that Trump officials in the White House be frog-marched out of the White House become such a punitive political movement that is on the side of the prosecutors and the FBI and the CIA and wants to see so many people prosecuted, including this 17-year-old who, whatever else you want to say about him, did not go to a protest and indiscriminately start shooting people, but only shot people who he who were advancing on him. That is the clear and indisputable truth. And I think that the answer to this question tells us so much about where we are politically. And also a major reason why I probably found myself with more distance between myself and American liberalism and, and even the left than I ever had before, as have other people like Matt Taibbi and others. This is what I believe. During the Trump years, 
America and the left got convinced that Donald Trump and his movement were not political adversaries who had an ideology with which they vehemently disagreed the way normal politics typically happens. Traditionally, American politics has been a pretty peaceful affair, at least since the Civil War. At least, say, in the last five decades. Obviously, there's been exceptions, the Vietnam War, the civil rights conflicts, but politics, at least in the modern era, was defined by Barack Obama this way. He said, I know there's all this talk about how Democrats and Republicans are so at each other's throats and can't agree on anything, but the reality is we have very minor differences. We're all playing within the, within the 40-yard line. And we're always fighting over just these 20 yards, pushing people a little bit back or forward toward the 50-yard line, meaning we all basically have the same foundational view, establishment wings of both parties, and we kind of bicker over things in the margin. I think he's... ...both parties. Donald Trump destroyed and obliterated that perception because the narrative became that Donald Trump was an unprecedented, never-before-seen aberrational figure, that he was literally a Nazi or Hitler-like figure, and that his movement was a white supremacist, white nationalist threat to American democracy. So American liberals, and then increasingly the left, now believe that when they engage in politics, they're not engaging in politics to have debates with political adversaries or to observe legal niceties. They believe that they're fighting a Nazi movement, that there's a Nazi movement poised to take over the United States, an existential threat to democracy, that if they lose, they're going to be put in camps. They have all these kind of melodramatic, self-serving vision of the importance of their political work. It's a lot more exciting to fight over stopping fascism from taking root in the United States and stopping Nazi concentration camps from being constructed in the United States than it is fighting over what the capital gain tax should be or the extent to which abortion rights should be protected or the ordinary political disputes. It, it, it makes you, it gives you a purpose for a lot of people as if you're political fight historic and consequential and courageous. You're not uh, historic, epic battle about whether fascism will prevail. That is what American liberals and now increasingly the American left see that they're up to. And they don't just see that with people who wear swastika armbands. That's the whole point. White supremacy means something much greater they believe basically the other half of the country, the people who support Donald Trump, inherently fascist, are inherently racist, are inherently terrorist. This is the reason crucial to call the January 6th riot at the Capitol an insurrection. Even though the Justice Department has not charged a single person with inciting insurrection, sedition, treason, or attempts to kidnap and kill AOC and other members of or whatever the uh, fantasies that they create, fantasies of that day, they still need that insurrection narrative because 
if you can say that you're in the middle of an insurrection, you basically have now defined your entire political opposition as inherently criminal. And that is absolutely how they see it. And so when they want the January 6th defendants to be imprisoned, when they want Robert Mueller to come and take out Don, Donald Trump Jr. and Roger Stone and Donald Trump and put him in prison, when they're eager to see Kyle Rittenhouse thrown in a dungeon for the rest of his life, it's not because they believe that crimes were committed in the sense that crimes are typically and historically understood, that there's been a violation of what the law prohibits. They don't care about that. That's why they have such strong views of Kyle Rittenhouse's guilt, even though they didn't bother to watch the trial, even though they so clearly don't even have a mastery of the basic facts. They see Kyle Rittenhouse as a criminal. They really do, but not the 25th in Kenosha, but because of their perception of what his politics are. That's the same thing they see with the January 6th defendants. That's all they need to believe should be in prison is that your ideology is associated with the Republican Party, the pro-Trump movement, because it's not just a conservative movement. It's a fascist insurrectionary threat to. That's what they really believe. And if you really believe that, as they really believe that, it's actually rational to think that anyone who belongs in prison, it's, it's like a war mentality. When there was an act in the United States, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus because when you're in a civil war, the luxury of constitutional and legal niceties, it doesn't matter on a battlefield, due process, that you have to dispense with in war. So once you adopt that war mentality, we're in a civil war against a fascist insurrectionary movement. All those people that are against you should be in prison simply. Everything becomes binary. So if I'm someone who stands up and says, I've been a lawyer, I studied law 20 years ago, I practiced law for 10 years, I watched the entire trial. And I believe Kyle Rittenhouse should be acquitted, not for political reasons, but because I evaluated the evidence as best as I could. They don't. They don't. Because what they hear that as is as you defending somebody on the other side of a war. And it's basically all they can understand it as all they can interpret that as is this binary declaration of which side of a civil war that you're on. And by saying that. Or I think the January 6th defendants are being over-prosecuted and most of them don't belong in prison. Or saying, I don't think Russiagate is actually a scam. Essentially, self with the people that they've decided are, are fascists, are, are white nationalists. And it makes sense for you to hate anyone who defends people you're convinced are white nationalists and fascists who want to set up concentration camps for minorities and all the other things they've convinced themselves are true. That's why this case has such profound importance to them. That's why defending Kyle Rittenhouse results in automatic expulsion from any good standing, indecent left, because they hear that as you're declaring yourself to be on the other side of this war. So again, if you're interested in the 
kind of more legal analysis of what I saw in the trial. I encourage you to go listen to the Rumble video that I did right when the verdict was delivered. I also had that discussion with Megan Kelly that was taking place without our knowing the verdict was coming. So it was a kind of a deliberative uh, examination of the things that we saw, but also the media discourse. Um, but, you know, I don't think we're even verdict. And uh, I think that what you're seeing is this kind of escalation in the hysteria that is dominating how people are reacting to what took place. I mean, the things that they're saying are so unhinged. I believe there was somebody on MSNBC who said this verdict was worse than what happened with Emmett Till. That's the level we're at in the discourse where immediately being declared a white nationalist, a white nationalist, meaning that America should be constructed to venerate racial, incredibly grave accusations to make about somebody or that you're a fascist. If you can't say that, then discourse has completely broken down. Where the only way that you understand political debates is by putting them through this right after Al-Qaeda attacked the United States, you're either with us or you're against us. You're either on our side or you're on the side of terrorists. But that is absolutely the prevailing mentality, the prevailing framework in left liberal politics. So with that, I will um, start to things as they appear in the queue. Is Andrew. So Andrew, if you unmute yourself, we should all be able to hear you. Hello, sir. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Thank you. So I completely agree with your framing. This is a war mentality. And I just wanted to tell a really quick story from when this actually happened. Um, In 2016, I was involved in leading the student organization for electing Bernie Sanders president. And uh, I stayed involved with these groups even after that in the social media groups. And when this shooting occurred, I was watching it live and arguing with these people, trying to get basic facts determined to be just agreed upon. And these weren't facts like timeline of who got shot first or whatever. It was like he was shooting into a crowd randomly. And I was showing them videos that showed every gunshot that I could find. None of them were shooting into a crowd randomly. We know that now. But for this, I was labeled a white supremacist terrorist supporter. And to be fair, some of these people that were telling me that I was a white supremacist, whatever, they didn't really know me personally. But the people who did know me personally and worked with me for years did not speak up on my behalf. None of them. None. And so there's a social cost in these groups to even saying anything about the basic facts. Um, And today, when I go back to this group, I'm looking at the same logic of that the verdict happened because of white supremacy and that uh, one of these people is saying that if a, if a black man had done what Kyle Rittenhouse has done, he would never have been acquitted. He never gotten away. And I, I asked a question, which I think broke their brains, which is, so would you think that if Kyle Rittenhouse was black, this would be okay? And no one's answering me because if they say it was okay, if he's black, they're saying that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't do anything wrong, but they also can't say that a black man can't defend himself from white people attacking him unprovoked. So this whole thing doesn't have to do with facts or laws. It has to do with a kind of culture war that we're involved in. 
And the problem is that I can't, even people that they've worked with, that they should know are speaking in good faith, are basically castigated because it, it gets in the way of this narrative where they feel like they're in this cosmic battle of good and evil. And uh, I don't know what to do about that, but um, I recently saw a friend that I very much value that had nothing to do with this political group thing, saying things that were completely contrary to facts. And what I'm going to do is the opposite of these people. I'm going to engage with her and treat her like a human. And I don't know if there's anything else we can do other than that, because the reason the media is able to get away with this kind of stuff is because there's a giant base of people that are completely willing to buy it up no matter what it is. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you very much, sir. Well, first of all, thank you. I think that was incredibly uh, important and uh, thought-provoking comment. And so I just want to make a few quick points that arose in my mind as you were speaking. First of all, I'm actually thrilled that you began by saying that you worked on the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. I, I don't mean that you were a paid employee of the campaign. I mean that you were a supporter because I do want to avoid a kind of sweeping generalization about the left. I have always had a large number of readers who are supporters of mine from the anti-establishment wing of the left who are trans in the traditional sense of that term who come from that left-wing tradition of believing in free speech and due process and also who just don't want to be lied to who aren't willing to lie for a political cause as you said all you wanted to do was actually just figure out what happened on that night not immediately attach yourself to a narrative that was the right one so i want to just actually highlight the fact that there is a substantial part of my readership still and not just my readership but the readership of Matt Taibbi and Aaron Mate and Jimmy Dore and other people who have been declared expelled from leftism Elsie Gabbard and others like her who are are on the left and are doing their best their ideology but to preserve their integrity as they try and resist this coercion to affirm things they don't believe. And the other point I want to add is when I was on Tucker Carlson's show last night, um, I only had, I think, two minutes because he had a string of guests, understandably, to talk about the verdict. And the second question he asked me was, why does the media always want to impose a racial framework? What's the motive behind it? And I only had that minute to, to answer. And I basically said it gives them all. And I didn't really get to all meant by that was reflected by what you just said. If you know that you're, that any dissent from left liberal orthodoxies will result in your being branded a racist and a white supremacist or a fascist, that is a very potent weapon of coercion to breed conformity or to silence people. It, it, is, it, is, it, it hurts to be called a racist or a white supremacist or a white nationalist. And for someone like me, who is relatively insulated from the career consequences of that, not entirely, for sure. I do have an independent tells me to take positions that result in those accusations. Still, it bothers me to be called those names. And for people who are less, uh, I guess, protected from those tactics, people who need jobs in media, who need jobs in the corporate world, who can't afford those accusations. The climate is going to suppress their ability to speak freely. That's the purpose of it. 
That's the reason that it's done. That's why this racialized narrative is imposed and superimposed on everything so that if you dissent, dissent from them in any way, even on a trial that involves one white person shooting three others, be as the worst thing you can possibly be in this society, which is a racism white supremacist. And that is a deliberate weapon that they use in order to intimidate people out of questioning or opposing their orthodoxy. So I really quickly you're sharing that experience. Go ahead. I was just going to say the reason that the people that knew me didn't speak up wasn't because they thought what these people were saying about me was true, but because of exactly what you said, that there's no benefit to sticking up for someone like that. Exactly. I'll just add one quick anecdote, which is when I was questioning and expressing skepticism of Russiagate for the last four or five years, I would be contacted by young people, journalists, talented journalists who work inside large media outlets. And they would say, I'm really thankful you're doing this. I wish I could. And I understood why they couldn't. I didn't look at them as cowards, even though it is kind of cowardly by definition. But I know that they work in an industry where the jobs are disappearing all the time. And if you step out of line for even one second, that gives your editor the excuse to put you on the top of the list the next time there are layoffs. There's a job opening in the media. People like you apply and you've been called a racist or a white supremacist on Twitter or a sympathizer of fascism because you question Russiagate. Easy way to throw your to the trash can. And people know that that is the climate that they're working in. And it's incredibly unhealthy. Um, all right, Andrew, thank you so much again for uh, the, the really interesting things. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Okay. Uh, next up is Nick. So Nick, if you go ahead and uh, one second, if you go ahead and unmute yourself, we should be able to hear you. Hi, Glenn. Can you hear me? Great. Appreciate the opportunity to ask you a question. You focus on the theme of misinformation coming from the very organizations that frantically accuse less powerful organizations and people of misinformation. The theme is consistently apparent in contrarian fact-supported views that Fox News and conservatives advocate related to the Kyle Rittenhouse case, Russiagate, January 6th. the, The left accuses you of being a flack for the right because of this. Do you work to scrutinize potential misinformation coming from Fox News and other conservative media, and you haven't identified proportional misinformation coming from the right? Or do you feel that the conservative media is already so criticized by other media platforms that you prefer to not use your platform to cover the overly saturated narrative? Yeah, I appreciate your asking that question. That's obviously a commonly expressed critique of my work. And it, contrary to popular view, it has been a long-term criticism of my work. You can actually go back and find a Vox article, for example, from the 2016 election that was headlined, Why Does Glenn Greenwald Spend So Much of His Time Criticizing Hillary Clinton? Which basically accused me of disproportionately attacking Hillary Clinton while ignoring or relatively downplaying the flaws of Donald Trump. This has been a long-time critique of mine. Um, other people have gotten this critique in public life. Noam Chomsky has spent 50 years having people say, why do you spend so much of your time criticizing the United States and ignoring the crimes of this? Why do you focus on 
that country, but ignore this one. Then it's already a pretty dubious way to critique somebody. Um, every journalist is one person. I'm not CNN. I'm not a major news outlet. I can't talk about every newsworthy topic. I have to pick and choose what I focus on and what I don't. And I think a lot of this goes back to just how I began writing about politics. You know, remember in 2005, I was a lawyer. I didn't go to Columbia Journalism School. I didn't get a job at the New York Times. I just created a blog one day because I felt that there were a lot of issues surrounding the war on terror and particularly what I regarded as radical abuses of executive power theories under Article 2 that the Bush administration had adopted to allow the president to do all kinds of things that were an attack on civil liberties that were getting shit. Those issues have been getting the New York Times and NBC News. I never would have created a blog. I never would have felt like there was a need for me to go say what other people were already saying. And that has always been how I tried to do journalism. I've always tried to use my platform to focus on the things, not that everybody else is focused on, but that other people, in my view, are giving insufficient attention to. And so in 2016, you'll see in the Vox interview, you know, I said, look, essentially the entire mainstream media is opposed to Donald Trump and in favor of Hillary Clinton. I think she got 108 out of 111 newspaper endorsements. It was obvious that the mainstream media was aligned against Trump, as was the security state, as were lots of centers of power. And so I said, I could just echo that and I'll be really popular. You know, if I do, if I just join in the, the, the kind of orgy of everyday journalists waking up and saying Trump's controlled by Putin, Trump's a fascist, Trump's a racist, Trump's this, Trump's corrupt, Trump's a liar didn't feel like that was a very good use of my platform because that it was Hillary Clinton's flaws that were receiving insufficient attention. And so that's what I devoted myself to, not because I felt like there were no flaws in Donald Trump that deserved attention, but because there was a whole industry devoted to highlighting those. And so if somebody says to me now, why don't you spend your time on Fox News and the misinformation it disseminates? I have been very clear that Fox News also does disseminate this. I was on Fox News once talking about disinformation early on. That that critique applies to Fox News as well as to MSNBC and CNN. I had Tucker Carlson as a guest when I guest hosted a podcast hosted by Jeremy Scahill at The Intercept, where I spent half my time talking with him about Russiagate, but the other half of my time confronting him, some of the reckless and irresponsible and dubious pressing critiques of Fox News. I've done it all the time. I Even now I do it. But it is true, I do tend to spend a vast bulk of my time on the media outlets that aren't Fox News, because you have kind of Fox News over here sitting alone, and then the rest of the media completely aligned against it. And in fact, they take pleasure in that. CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times love to point out, look, we're all covering this story and this story and this story, and yet look at what Fox is talking about, something totally different. And it's true. The reason there's a Fox News is because it stands alone in challenging the orthodoxies of liberal mainstream media. And so I just don't think my platform would be very well served in terms of value 
by live blogging the errors of Fox News since billionaire funded projects like Media Matters and the Daily Beast and almost every other liberal outlet. What I think gets undercovered and underplayed is the anti uh, conservative, anti-Republican lies that were exemplified by Russiagate and now by the January 6th narrative and the Rittenhouse case and the authoritarianism among the dominant party in Washington, which is the Democratic Party. It's just a better use of my platform. And obviously, if someone wants to be jaded about it, they can say, oh, actually, the reason that you don't go on Fox is you don't criticize Fox is because you go on Fox. But I've always criticized Fox when I've gone on there. I've always criticized CNN and MSNBC in the years. I have no problem criticizing the people up in the morning and ask myself, how best can I use my platform to inform people and improve the discourse? I look for the things that aren't being covered, not to jump on the train and be popular by echoing what everyone else is already saying. And that is the reason for how I determine my focus. All right. Thank you for asking that. Um, person is Sal. Um, and by the way, if you ask me something and I answer, feel free to, um, you know, ask a follow-up or express your comments. You're not. Discourse and exchanges if um, that's what you want to do. So let me do the next. Okay, uh, Sal, you should be able to unmute yourself and speak. Yeah, so Glenn, um, just going back in history, there was a murder of Kitty Genovese, and the New York Times wrote an article that was basically, in essence, fake news around the murder of her saying that there was over 38 people who witnessed it and they didn't report it to the police. That was in 1964. New York Times admitted that the reporting was flawed in 2016, more than 62 years later. Now information travels much faster. There's people like uh, you and and others who immediately uh, bring out all the flaws in, in what was mainstream reporting. And now the way I look at it is this is the inflection point. This is because this is something that people can relate to. They can go watch the videos themselves and they can see the blatant lies that were paraded and for no obvious gain, because all you have to do was just go watch the videos. Uh, Do you think there's a cost to this? Uh, To paraphrase Hemingway, he's like, you know, you go bankrupt two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Till now, they paraded so many lies about, you know, Iraqi WMDs, Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, even the recent coverage on the Nicaraguan elections, all their international coverage of like even countries like the Bolivian coup, all of that was like either pure lies or falsehoods by omissions. But now like this is just a simple court case of a 17, 18 year old. All he had to do was watch all the videos, watch the court trial case. And yet they're still in denial. Do you think this is an inflection point when it comes to the Galman amnesia effect? Yeah, you know, it's it's such a, an important point because the grotesque fake news spread by the most prestigious media institutions is not confined to the well-known cases like Iraq WMDs, which just by itself ought to have really undermined events and what we were told, given the consequences of that. So often it's determined years later that stories that the Meese and ratified in unison 
we're not just slightly in error, but or or tendentious, but we're completely false. I'll just give you one one interesting example. In I believe it was 20, 2016. It was twenty sixteen. Um, a Muslim man named Omar Mateen in Orlando went to the Pulse nightclub, which was a uh, gay and lesbian nightclub. And he went into that uh, club and he shot 52 people, I believe 52 or 49, something like that, killing them all. And the narrative immediately rose that his motive for doing that was he was somebody who toward, toward gay people. And it was an intuitively appealing narrative because people who are highly religious in Islam do sometimes have antipathy to gay people. That's not a secret. And it seemed like he went into a gay club and shot as many people as he could find indiscriminately. And so it seemed like that was probably true. And I assumed it was true. And I think most people believe that it was true and LGBT groups fundraised off of it. And they talked about how this proves that there's this ongoing hatred for gay and lesbian people and politicians went and, and, and endorsed that narrative. And then about three years later, his wife was prosecuted by the justice department for having aided and abetted his murder spree because he had been killed that night. There was no one to punish. There was a demand from the community that someone be held accountable. And so they prosecuted her by claiming that she had foreknowledge of it and even helped him scope it out. It was a completely, uh, baseless prosecution. I denounced it from the start and she was ultimately acquitted. But in the course of doing that reporting on that trial, what I learned, and not just me, but other reporters, including one from Huffington Post and a couple of others who were following it closely, all realized that the narrative that had been disseminated about what had happened at that at Pulse nightclub was completely false. That Omar Mateen had no knowledge that that was even a gay and lesbian club. He had spent the days before scoping out Disney properties and uh, concluded that they were not soft enough targets because there was too much security. And it was at the last second that he decided he was going to go to a nightclub and he went to Google and entered Orlando nightclubs, not Orlando gay nightclubs, just Orlando nightclubs. And the first uh, result in Google search terms was Pulse. And so he entered that into his GPS and went there. He was in that club for three or four hours, shooting people, murdering them, terrorizing them, and never once, never once uttered anything homophobic. He spent hours on the phone with the police, telling the police this. And he talked about it was in retaliation in Syria and drone attacks on innocent people in Pakistan. He pledged loyalty to ISIS, never once mentioned that he was doing it because he believed homosexuality was immoral. So all the evidence that emerged negated that narrative and proved that it wasn't true. And for years, that's what the media told us happened. And if you didn't study it, including people like me, you ended up believing it. And obviously, the more that happened, the more we are going to be conditioned to quick process. Um, I think it's a gradual one, but I also agree with you that the more it happens, you get to a tipping point and polling data is starting to show that we're either at that test. Huge majorities of people do not believe 
what the largest media corporations are telling them. They don't believe that what they're hearing from them is truthful and reliable in the way or getting angry or directing their animus to journalists who are lying to them all the time. And they're right. They, they are right in that perception. That is what journalists are doing. So I think that's the reason why the system in the media that is independent, that has emerged and is so successful, precisely because those institutions that we in the independent media have decided we don't want to be a part of anymore because you cannot tell the truth within them. So I do think there's starting to be a strong perception change. I think they know that. That's why they're so devoted to maligning independent media. That's why they're so devoted to censoring independent media, to controlling the internet, to preserve their ability to almost force people to be a captive audience to them by destroying anyone else who might try to compete with them. But I don't think it's going to work because, as you suggested, the process is accelerating where people are realizing more and more that what they hear from the media is not just occasionally in error, but deliberately deceitful. And as someone who's challenged the national security state, don't you think like a lot of this is like Salazar's three F's basically do a lot of fighting, infighting to do with like wokeism, identity politics. Meanwhile, everyone forgets that the national security state gets $1.25 trillion. It's actually not the headline 700 billion number. It's $1.25 trillion, yet there's no money for Medicare for all. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I find your framing is, I don't know what your politics are, but the traditional left-wing understanding of politics that we spend far too much money on the security state and not enough on the welfare of citizens, although that has become increasingly a view that's popular in right-wing populism as well, which is one of my political projects is to get people on both sides of that spectrum to see the common ground that they have. Um, But, you know, one of the reasons, again, that I find myself more distant from the liberal left exactly what you said, which is one of my main focus citizen has been the pernicious nature of the security state. And that has almost disappeared entirely from liberal left politics. It's very notable that Antifa, which claims to combat fascism, never would go to the CIA in Langley and protest outside the CIA or an NSA office. They think fascism is like these roving bands that the U.S. government is completely against as well. Half the time Antifa is out on the street protesting in defense of vaccine mandates. So for me, left liberal completely given up on the idea that challenging the security state is an important priority. And although nobody likes to admit it, that they like the CIA, that they like the FBI, I think there is this like kind of emerging view that in the scope of our enemies, those security state services are either low down on the list of the people we should be worried about or even our allies, which we'll often find now left liberals cheering for prosecutors and the Justice Department and and why MSNBC and CNN is filled almost to the brim with former prosecutors and other people from the FBI and the Justice Department, because that has become the ethos of liberal politics, as I described earlier. All right. um, Next up is uh, Rick. Let me just see. 
All right, Rick, I think you're ready to be unmuted. Rick, are you there? Let me see if I can unmute you myself. So, Rick, I'm going to give you a few seconds. If you can't unmute yourself, I'm going to have to move to the next caller, Dade. So, Dade, get ready. Dade, are you there? Hey, how's it going, Glenn? now hey can you hear me okay great so uh thanks for having me hello thank you to everyone who's listening i'll get straight to it um my question is basically i'm questioning uh, how you're reasoning about social media a little bit more about your previous answer um so like you've noted there's been a lot of people who have gotten a lot of basic facts wrong about this case um but not just in the media in, on social media, on Twitter, which also has a big driving force in our dialogue. Um, and so my question to you is basically about power in social media, because I know you have expressed and do express um, a desire to not have tech companies, um, you know, overstep their power and infringe on people's First Amendment rights online and on places like Twitter. And I also know you to be an anti government authoritarian, so I don't think you would support the government placing any legislation that would step on First Amendment rights, something that would be analogous to like China or the CCP, how they approach social media. But then also we have this issue of people online, not just in the media, but normal people online who are misinformed and spreading misinformation about something like a case like this. So my question to you is, how do you reason with what seems to be like this type A, type B problem where if you don't allow for one centralized authority to control information online, you seem to allow necessarily people to at least potentially spread misinformation? Um, Thank you for accepting the question. Yeah, it's a great question. It's I. I guess, you know, I would say that there's what reductive, but when it comes to any uh, pathology or harm to society that comes from granting people liberty, there's basically two choices, generally speaking, obviously not, but you can basically go in one of two different directions. You can either limit people's liberty to engage in harmful conduct, or you can say that the more dangerous path is to empower the state to regulate those harms and instead rely on the capacity of human beings in the society to reason with one another and to connect to their better sides. So every freedom is necessarily going to entail harm. If you allow people freedom of speech, you're going to have people spreading noxious and dangerous ideas. If you allow people freedom of the press, you're going to have institutions 
or individuals spreading disinformation. If you give people the right to have the privacy in their homes, not to have the government listen in on their calls without a warrant or not to have the police invade their house without a warrant, it's going to make it harder to catch criminals. Every liberty has certain harms. And obviously, and free press, it always did before social media even, and now it does even more. I do not trust any human institution with the power to regulate our discourse by declaring what is true and what is false. There are people now purporting to be able to do that. Fact checkers or billionaire funded arbiters of truth. And so often their decrees are very subjective and often manipulative. Even if they're trying, they're still human and will err. And so I don't know, I believe in the power of human reason, the ability of people to persuade one another to, about what the truth is. I do think it's interesting that in this Rittenhouse case, the defendants and the prosecutors both had a very strong hand in choosing this jury. And they obviously both tried to pick a jury that would decide in their favor. They analyzed the jury's character, the juror's characteristics, their politics, their background. They have specialists who tell them what kind of person they should look for. And they ultimately found a jury of 12 people from this community who sat there and listened every day to the evidence, knowing that there was a chance that their identities could be exposed. And a lot of people would be angry at them for life if there was an acquittal, but they got persuaded that the media consensus about this case was wrong and that the just outcome was to conclude the state didn't prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt and therefore weren't willing to imprison this person, even though their personal interest might have suggested that they ought to do that. I, I don't know. Maybe it's naive. Um, maybe it's a little rosy eyed. But part of why I do believe in, a, in, in free speech so fervently and want to avoid having centralized institutions regulate and police our thoughts and lives and discourse is because I do strongly believe that human beings have a strong capacity to reason. And if we can connect to each other through free dialogue, open discourse, civility, tolerance for disagreements, to me, that always is the best path for eliminating some of these problems. Can I have a quick yep. follow-up question? So, uh, and I ask this because um, this is something that I think about as well. Um, so in light of social media, the, you know, the technolog technological revolution that we've kind of lived through in the last 10 years, um, how do you reason through the unique novelty aspect of social media? Because if I was someone who was, you know, a typical Democrat, I might say, you know, by not having a centralized power there, you leave the door open to foreign agents like you might say Russian disinformation, which riles people up to a breaking point on January 6th. But if I was a more conservative leaning person, I might say you leave the door open to apps like TikTok, who are running controlled by the Chinese government for being the number one, you know, app used for American youth. Um, so how do you reason through what feels like novelty? Um, very novel uh, cases that we're living through um, with this new technology. And do you think that those are legitimate? And do you wrestle with those as well? Or do you think the principle still applies that the potential harm is worth, the potential risk is worth the benefit of having a free and open, unregulated dialogue and discourse? 
Yeah, I mean, the latter formulation that you just articulated is definitely the one that I embrace. Having said that, though, I do worry about the ability of this technology, social media and the like, more than ever to silo ourselves off. It's extremely easy to block everybody, literally block, as well as metaphorically block everybody who has a dissenting view, so that the only thing we're ever hearing are people who are constantly affirming the things we want to believe about the world and never have to be challenged. It's been actually kind of bizarre and amazing as somebody who has been on cable news for 10 or 15 years, you know, it was never exactly a model of constructive discourse, but there was always a pretense of having people on who had different ideas to debate their differences. You know, the standard cable segment eight years ago used to be, here's a democratic strategist, here's a Republican strategist. And for six minutes, they're going to spout their different talking points and let the viewer decide what they believe. Now the model of cable and news in general is to almost never have any kind of discourse that is about debate or dissent. I mean, I used to have TV debates all the time. I don't remember the last time I was invited on TV to actually have a debate with someone. I have to seek those out by going on podcasts or inviting people who are my critics to come onto platforms like these. That's what I worry about the most is, you know, obviously you saw with Russiagate, um, the minute anyone became a, a d- dissident of Russiagate, they were disappeared off MSNBC and CNN. I have a friend, I think I mentioned this before, who's a host of one of the two major cable networks. And what he told me once is you don't just get program by program ratings, you get segment by segment ratings. And he told me that if he ever puts on any guest like me or anyone who's critical of the Democratic Party or who challenges the precepts of American liberalism, you can see the audience disappear. Everyone has a remote control in their hand and nobody wants to hear someone telling them that their worldview is mistaken. And I do think that's a very dangerous uh, technology because that whole pretty picture I just depicted of the power of reason disappears if people can create a world in which they never have to be challenged. So again, I still think the greater danger is empowering a centralized institution. But one of the things about which I'm optimistic is the ability of independent media, the independent component of this new media ecosystem of people who are saying, look, we're devoted to having this kind of free inquiry so that you're always going to have ideas challenged and you're going to have the ability to express views that in other places you would pay a price for expressing that ability. I think there's a hunger on the part of enough people for that kind of a discourse that it will empower and enable those places devoted to that to not just be sustainable, but to actually overtake the segments of the media that are just constantly feeding people predictable problem. Um, So I hope that isn't overly optimistic. I hope that is how it's going to work. Well, let's hope. Uh, Thanks very much for uh, having my question. I I truly do appreciate you taking my question and giving me such a a thorough response. And um, I'll, I'll pass it on for the next person. Excellent. Great. Thank you. And uh, I'm afraid this is going to have to be the last one I take, um, in part because my phone battery is dying and in part because I have a dog who is a little bit sick and and in the hospital. He's doing okay, but I want to go visit him. Um, So the next person is Andre, who, if I'm not mistaken, 
is somebody who I am about to debut a podcast with on Tuesday. Um, I think called the Andre England show or something like that. Um, I assume that's him. Let me see if I can pull him up to confirm. And then we can talk a little bit about that. And then I'm sure he has some very, very confrontational and challenging question. Cause that's the nature of his personality and why I want to do a podcast with him. So let me see if I can move over and take him. Andre, I think you can unmute yourself. How's it going, Glad? Hello. So, yes, it yeah. is Andre. And let me, before you delve into your... Did you forget the name of our podcast? Unredacted. How could I possibly forget totally the name did. of our podcast? <laughs> yes, you got me. Forget that. <laughs> uh. So, Unredacted is the podcast Andre and I are doing. Um, for those of you who don't know him, I hope you will follow his work. Um, he and I have had numerous conversations over the past year where we have a lot in common, but also a huge amount of differences, one of which I'm, I presume you're about to see. Um, and we decided to try and take that conversation and turn it into a podcast rather than just enjoying it for ourselves in the spirit of having people be able to have spirited disagreements that become enlightening rather than um, designed to destroy. So it'll, Andre, it's Tuesday, 430 Eastern. Is that correct? That's the time we settle on. Uh, yep, Tuesday, four thirty p.m. Eastern time. So, if you click on my profile or on or on Andres, you'll see the page for Unredacted. If you follow it, then uh, you'll be able to be notified when it starts. And you can also, uh, we'll also both of us will obviously be promoting it. So, we'll Andre, I will see you on Tuesday. But in the interim, I'm very interested in what you have to say. Okay, I, I guess. Uh... So you haven't seen me talk about the uh, the Rittenhouse trial on social media, and that's because, and I, I've told you this privately, that uh, <clears throat> I wanted to stay away from the daily cut and thrust of it and not get sucked into the social media conversation. I'd rather assess it from a safe enough distance outside of that conversation that I can come to a, a reasonable conclusion that, that actually holds integrity with me. But I, I guess my question is, why why is it, why is it that uh, the liberal left response to this trial is so interesting to you? And when I say liberal left, I'm talking about, you know, the, the people who operate within the parameters of neoliberal realism and call themselves Democrats, for example, not be, but not people who would be on the left, like me, for example, right? or people who you know, consider themselves socialists or anarchists, et cetera. I, I guess my question is, why does that take up so much of your concern versus the, uh, the right wing response? Well, I think there is an interesting question. Obviously, this did become an, uh, uh, an important cause for the right as well. Although I think like the reason is obvious and lots of people have said so, which was there was a perception that after the killing of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement became kind of like sacred. It took on this like kind of religious status where corporations that never weigh in on political controversies were posting homages to Black Lives Matter on their social media accounts and democratic politicians in particular who generally run large cities wanted to ensure that they did weren't perceived as being antagonistic to the movement. And this movement was allowed and by this movement, I mean, not just, as I said before, black lives matters activists, but also people who attached themselves to it, who probably didn't have much interest in it, um, who were allowed to engage in conduct that ended up burning down small businesses and immigrant owned businesses and black and brown owned businesses and harming communities in their eyes that there was a 
Whoa, whoa, whoa! According to uh, whoa, according well, there's to been whom? lots of reporting on. I, I've seen I've seen the articles and I've seen the reporting, but uh, for the most part, uh, I've also seen stories of those businesses being protected. While let's say, for example, like Targets and WalMarts were burned down, Wendy's were burned down. Yeah, but they're, they're not, very, not, so so. First of all, I'm just I'm just describing why this became important from the right wing perspective, and we can talk. Let me just articulate mm. that reason, and then we can talk about whether it's valid. So I'm saying from the right wing perspective. Sure, sure. A lot of small businesses were being harmed. There's reporting in the New York Times and from independent journalists who interviewed store owners. I've heard them myself saying that their stores were burned down. They built up over generations. They are battling with their insurance companies to get the full payment. They haven't been able to, especially in the pandemic. That was devastating to them. You know, I think we saw the images. You can debate how much it was exaggerated or how pervasive it really was. But the perception was there was a failure on the part of the state to perform its most basic duty which was to ensure the public safety and law and order. And so Kyle Rittenhouse became a symbol of somebody who said, given the state's failure, I'm going to mm-hmm. go do this myself. I'm going to take up arms and go protect a business. And he became a heroic figure. They became That became something very important in right-wing politics because they believed he was reacting to a failure that they perceived was the most central failure a government can have, which is the failure to keep the peace. I, so the question then becomes to me, why was it so important on the left and, and, and to liberals? And, and the reason why I, I find that an interesting question is because it's, to me at least, it's not immediately obvious why this case would have so much political significance to the liberal left. Why, why would it? Like, why, why is that not important to you? Well, it's, it's very obvious. To, no, it's very obvious to me. It's obvious to me, and I'm surprised it actually hasn't occurred to you. And, and the thing is, like, you, I, I think you tend to see this, like, uh, you know, liberal and right wing divide as being antipodes, and they're not; they're twins. And the liberal response to this has been to uh, this, this, this vain hope that justice will prevail, that whatever comes out of the the Rittenhouse trial is going to end up vindicating the justice system. At the very same time that the Rittenhouse trial is taking place, the the uh, the uh, trial of the collision of Maude Arbery is also taking place. And you hardly see any of that being reported. But the I, I agree, for example, that the angle that uh, this should be viewed through the lens of white supremacy is absolutely ridiculous on its face. Now, the reason that Rittenhouse was in Kenosha in the first place as a white person who's, you know, who's also said that he wishes that he could shoot Antifa protesters, I guess, the thing that came out of his mouth, uh, that the fact that he was there in the first place, I guess, could be concerning. I mean, it certainly was to me. The fact that he shoots protesters is also incredibly concerning and the treatment that he receives from police is concerning after uh, the other uh, shooting took place why was he in contact with them in the first place because officers were literally kettling protesters towards the uh, the aggressive right wingers that went down there to quote unquote protect property in the first place which is why i challenge you on the question of you know black and brown businesses being burnt because the one thing that businesses have that people generally do not is the ability to recoup their losses through insurance you can't recoup a person through insurance. You can only recoup financial uh, financial costs. You can't actually recoup that life. So to me, but let me just, let yeah. me just, okay, but let me just that like that that yeah, that yeah. is the claim. And I, like, I honestly, I find it. I, I I'm I'm right. kind of surprised that that claim has gotten so much cachet among anyone, let alone people on the left. And, and insurance companies what, are what, the what, devil. What, what I mean, they do everything possible to deny okay. your claim and. People who have small businesses don't have yep. enormous, you know, nest eggs. And it takes months, if not longer, especially in the middle of a pandemic, 
to get the money that you need to rebuild your business. And the yeah. insurance companies are doing everything are they can to, to prevent you from getting fully say, recouped. Like I do think the damage done to these small businesses I say, were. I didn't say that you're guaranteed. Go ahead. I didn't say you're guaranteed to recoup, but I said you can't. It can be recouped. Many insurance policies have an exclusion rider uh, that says that uh, you you will not get your losses recouped in the in the event of a, uh, a riot or a natural disaster, act of God, as they call it, right? So I'm not saying that that's true in all cases, possibly even most cases. What I'm saying is the possibility exists that you can recoup your losses, right? Whereas you can't recoup a life. And I think that positioning, like, I think positioning <clears throat> the act of protest against human lives is the dichotomy that you ought to be challenging in the first place, not necessarily the dichotomy between the left uh, supporting riots in some instances and supporting the idea for justice in another. To me, it's it's... It's pretty much the, uh, the the two sides of the same authoritarian coin. The idea that if justice prevails, then this uh, this kid's going to get sent to jail for however long. But what that does is vindicate the justice system that we already know. I mean, just last year we were talking about defund the police or abolish the police. We were talking about the uh, you know the, the 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 immense downsides to the carceral system, which is built on the uh, the warehousing of black and brown bodies inside of prison. I hate, fucking hate saying that word bodies, but you know what I'm trying to say here. Right. So I, I guess I guess what my concern is, why why the concern or my, my question is, why the concern with, with that liberal left response, which we've spoken about this several times. And we know why that is, is because what they want to do is reify the system as it exists, as being just and good and being able to change some social dimensions, i.e. educate people out of racism, send them to corporate training so that they'll understand the value of diversity. Challenging those social paradigms is what's going to alter the system rather than simply overturning the system altogether. Whereas the right wing response has been, hallelujah, he's off got free. And part of the reason for that is because if you read Noel Ignatiev and he, talk, he talks about race traitors, the fact that uh, these these two men that uh, that Kyle Rittenhouse shot were there, uh, you know, uh, it, ostensibly because of, of read about the uh, background and very the words that they said very yeah. ostensibly well, I'll, say, I'll say i'll say ostensibly that they were there uh in uh defense of black lives or protesting on behalf of black lives or whatever the case may be but kyle rittenhouse didn't know that when he went to kenosha and he certainly didn't know that when he shot them what he saw were two antifa protesters he knew nothing about them whatsoever and it's been a wet dream for these right-wing types to be able to flush the race traders the antifa types out of their ranks this has been the case for literally since the uh, since uh, since the abolition phase, right? But, Where, uh, but, but, anybody anybody who's interested but, but, in, in protecting whole, American this capital, whole, this whole thing is anybody who's and, been interested in protecting American capital has always wished to flush white people out of their ranks that are on the side of those of those savages that are subhuman. Yeah, this is the thing that has bothered me more than anything about this Rittenhouse trial. And we can carry this conversation over to our first episode, which is only yeah. in three days because I, I need to go in a second. But just just in response to everything you said, this is, I think, what has bothered me more than anything else is there's obviously this huge superstructure of a political battle that has been constructed around the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And he has become a symbol of all kinds of things for all kinds of people. And when I was watching the trial, mm -hmm. I was watching a defendant who's 18 years old sitting in a chair in a courtroom. And if the jury came back and found him guilty, he was going to be put in handcuffs and put in a cage for the next 40 and 50 years. And my question was a very narrow one, which is, did he do the kinds of things that you have to do in order for the state to justifiably put you in prison for the rest of your life? And the answer to me became very clearly, no, he didn't. So the, and and the, the key part of why that I got convinced of that was precisely because 
with the description that you just said, which is, mm-hmm. oh, people like to go and, and shoot the white race traders, right. is exactly to me what he did not do. Like, what, what convinced me so much was that the only people he... I'm not talking I know, about but the reality of what he, was, what he did has to matter. Like, the reality of what he did what, what is what that he only shot people who posed who I'm advanced talking about on people's him. responses to him you're, you're you're but glenn you're talking about the left liberal response quote unquote to the rittenhouse trial right and what i'm talking about is the right wing response to the trial and you're saying no no no, we have to talk about what's going on in cal rittenhouse's mind and i'm saying well if we're talking about people's responses to it why would you go on megan kelly and then not challenge that point of view as well like if you do you, you know, do, see yourself do, as do, a star do you think there was a lot of do you think there was a lot of right wing support for dylan roof uh, do you really want me to answer that question? Because I've been in. I do, I do, because I don't. I don't. I think there was almost none, like except on the very, very furthest okay. fringes. And if there's this idea that okay. like there's this great third, we're not talking about up, Dil- we're not talking about Dylan Roof though. We're talking about Cal Rittenhouse and the right wing. Well, no, but but like, but but, but, it, but, it, but if you're right that there's this like great revenge thirst to see white people uh, go this, and like you know, how, what was you would think that Dylan Roof would become a hero to the right as well, but he didn't because he was a psychopath. Who indiscriminately no. shot people because of their race? Okay, I, okay but uh, when Heather Heyer when Heather Heyer was killed by James Alex Field Jr. Uh, in the uh, the uh, the Charlottesville uprising, people saw him as you know uh, mowing down you know mowing down a protester is the right and good thing to do. To the extent that several states have passed laws saying that if you are in a vehicle and people are out protesting, you can just go ahead and mow them down. That's so not the law. That, that's that. That's not the law. The law is that if they're impeding you okay. and they step in front of your car and you run them over okay. because they've done that, you you aren't held criminal. It doesn't mean that you can go just drive around looking for protesters and aim your car at them like a missile. This is like trying to explain down. to me the ins and outs of stand your ground. This is like trying to explain to me the the vagaries of stand your ground, though. I mean, functionally, that's what the law may actually says, but in practical terms, how does it play out? Well, exactly what I just said. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't think that's true. I think if somebody got into a car and like purposely went around looking for protesters and mowed them down, he, they would have almost no support and they would certainly be convicted in every 50, one of the 50 James states. James Field did get that level of support though. What are you and talking about? I don't think I don't think he did. I don't think he got I I don't think he was turned into any kind of like a right-wing celebrity. I don't know. I mean, again, you can go find any any opinion online. I'm talking about prevailing views and I do think the way that Dylan Roof got viewed and the vast difference between him and Kyle Rittenhouse that there's some like significant portion of the American right wanting white people to go on murder binges against black people. I could right now, I could right now go and look through my bookmarks that I've made from last year and find any number of right wing personalities, not just like random people on Twitter, but people with like actual check marks and television shows and bylines. Talking about, uh, you know, either joking about or seriously discussing the possibility of mowing down protesters with their vehicles at, you know, uh, if they've encountered them on a highway overpass. So I don't, I don't know if that's that seems a little bit hyperbolic to me, Glenn. Yeah, I mean, look, like, you know, one of the things I started off saying was I do think we're entering like civil war discourse where right. people want their enemies treated as as enemies of war, which means you imprison them and don't care if it's proven with the niceties of legalisms or or even that they're killed you know like look at how liberals treat ashley babbitt Mm -hmm. you know like go ask a liberal what they think of ashley babbitt a woman who was unarmed part of a protest never used violence was shot in the neck and fatally killed i can't find a liberal who says that they are angry about that so i i think that on both sides there is this war but there's there's, this war mentality that is emerging that i find very disturbing 
Yeah. All right. Well, that is Andre, true, I got to go. I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, don't want to yeah. cut short our, our discussion, especially all good, all since good, we have a, a show of our yeah. own now to do. Um, but there's a little taste of <laughs> hey, you gotta, you gotta know that I'm st- you gotta know that you know that I'm studying your tweets like uh, like an imam studying the hadith, okay? And I will be I'll be there on Tuesday. We'll have a we'll have a great and productive discussion on this. I have a team a team digging through not just your tweets but your entire past. So I think we're gonna both be fully armed <laughs> and ready to go on Tuesday. Thank you, Andre, uh, for your appearance. Uh, no worries. You take it easy. All right, bye. All right, everyone. So um, that is a great opportunity to uh, just remind you that uh, Andre and I are going to have a show. And the interesting thing is, despite that exchange, which I really liked, um, we have a huge amount in common as well. In fact, the way that I got to know Andre was he contacted me at the very beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020 and told me he was doing an article for McLean's, which is a Canadian political journal. And he was extremely concerned about the civil liberties implications of anti-COVID measures that were being adopted and was particularly concerned about what happens to our right to protest if the government now has an excuse to force us all to stay in our homes and was interested in the idea of how the citizenry is going to be fractured and weakened by us all being separated from one another and how that was going to strengthen centers of power. And this was at a time when even people like me very early on in the COVID crisis were a little bit more open than otherwise we might be to the idea that maybe we do need to give the government some power to manage this pandemic. And Andre was sounding the carrying alarm from um, in a way that was more prescient and uh, I think more uh, clear eyed than pretty much anybody else. So that was the Nice beginning to our interaction, and it also entails disagreements of the kind that you just heard. So I hope you'll tune in to our first show Tuesday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern here. And Colin, you can uh, follow him and me and be notified when that happens. And I want to thank everybody uh, on a Saturday and for attending. And especially thanks to all the people who stepped up to ask questions. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I hope everyone has a great uh, we're safe.